0: You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Poonie.
1: What's up, people? This week we have something a bit different for you. We are interviewing a gentleman whose musical style has been described as an energetic blend of power pop, punk, and country ballad with shades of late 70s U.S. and British New Wave. It's also been described as eclectic, completely unexpected, undeniably catchy, an effervescent marriage of punk rock hooks and funky rockability melodies – I don't know what any of that stuff means. All I can tell you is his music is awesome. I'm a fan. I love it. Matt Jaffe is here on Growing Up Rock. Matt, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Do you do a lot of podcasts, interviews, stuff like that?
2: Not too many. I've done some phoners and uh, some blog posts where they let me type out my responses, which inevitably leads to things being way too complicated. But uh, I don't know if I've ever
1: done a, a podcast before, actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's – well, this yeah. will be your first one then. Yeah, that's great. All right. So I want to share with the fans how I came across Matt. So April 4th, 2014 – Matt Jaffe and the distractions were the last band to perform in a battle of the bands at hard rock cafe in San Francisco. The band that played right before him was a band called restrained, which our fans know we are big fans of. They do all of our bumper music. They're friends of mine. So, you know, I'm there to support Restrained. I'm watching Matt's band and remember thinking this 19 year old just kicked restrained's ass and, uh, wow, I'm going to vote for Matt and, you ended up winning, not just because of my vote. The whole place was nuts for you. So then I reached out the next day. We had a bit of correspondence, which we'll discuss a bit later. And four and a half years later, here you are. You remember that Battle of the Bands?
2: Oh, yeah. And I, I remember Restrained, too. It's Restrained with a Y, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I got, they gave me like a beer koozie or something.
1: <laughs> uh, they gave a 19-year-old a beer koozie. Good job, Tony. I know he's listening. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, no, those were those were really fun. I mean, I'm not a hugely competitive person, so the whole idea of a battle of the bands is sort of a weird one. But you know, in so much as we met other cool bands, and it wasn't the nature of it really wasn't that competitive. It was more just a, a show that happened to have a quote
1: unquote winner. Uh, you
2: know, it was a blast.
1: It was great. Yeah, that was really cool. All right, so let's get into a little bit of your history. How did you get into music? Uh, Was it your parents pushing you, siblings? Was it uh, school? How'd you get into it?
2: Oh well, my sister, who's three years older than me, picked up the classical violin. I guess you shouldn't say picked up when it's a classical instrument. You can say that (laughs) when it's like I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you take lessons when it's classical. She started taking lessons on classical violin when she was five, and Three years later, I did the same, and uh, our mom really encouraged us to stick with it, which we both did for a while. And even though our parents love music, I don't really think it was about music that she wanted us to remain dedicated. It was more about focusing and honing a craft and persevering, and you know all that stuff. So there are actually plenty of times when I didn't want to play violin. And about five years later. My sister had come home from, you know, like a sleepaway camp, you know, the kind with singing wagon wheel around a campfire, that sort of thing. Oh, OK. And she brought she came home with a, a little half sized nylon string guitar. And it was around this time that I was really getting into the Rolling Stones and Talking Heads. And and U2 was another big early one for me. And I noticed that those guys used a lot more guitars than violins. Uh, So I started messing around on the guitar and got invited to an open mic and dominoes started to fall. Now the violin is sort of a neglected stepchild.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, growing up in the 2000s, you know, you're living in the Bay Area, you know, hair metal is come and gone. Thrash, I guess, is kind of come and gone. Rap is kind of come and gone. The 2000s were, I guess, a boy band era more than anything else, pretty much, so Were you sticking to, like, the classic music instead of the new music that was around? Or what were you listening to?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think my my parents would get me these best of compilations. You know, the the Rolling Stones one, Jump Back. That was a big one for me. And the Best of Talking Heads. And among others. And, you know, the, the funny thing that I realized is that my not listening to those styles that you just listed... It wasn't even really a conscious thing. It was just to me, music was was these bands that we'd listen to in the car, and you know that was the Joshua Tree and the Almond Brothers and oh, who's the other one? Oh, CCR, the their best of. So it wasn't even. I said this to my bandmates at a gig last night, and they looked at me like I was totally crazy. <laughs> but I said to them, like, you know, I never even really meant to start a rock band, and it, it's it's really true. Like I didn't. I never really had a moment where I was like, "Oh, I want to want to write rock and roll songs. I want to play rock and roll guitar." It's just to me that's what music was, and I don't mean that in a, a ignorant way. I just mean I think it took me till about early years in college to realize that actually what I was listening
1: to was very unusual and <laughs> sort of outside. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Now, do you remember your first rock concert? Well, Who would you see first?
2: We, I, I'm pretty sure it was pretty sure it was a stone show a friend from middle school and i went to see and his dad he took us to see they were touring a record called i think a bigger bang or something okay that probably would have been like gosh i don't know 2005 or 6 something like that and you know we're way back you know in a, a baseball stadium and Mick has these really long catwalks that go to either side of the stage and then down the the center. And even when he came to the far side close to us, we were probably still like, you know, 50, 100 yards away from him or something.
1: Yeah. At the Oakland Coliseum?
2: It wasn't at the Coliseum. It was at the – I guess it's called O.Co field now.
1: It's where the oh okay Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're like up in the bleachers, up in the nosebleeds or something.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And and then – or you know, I, it's possible I have these backwards because we then my my family and I we went and saw the police reunion tour. Oh, okay. W- one of those was at where the A's play, and the other one was at was where the Giants play. Oh, okay. I'm honestly, not sure which was which, but you know, the picture is pretty much the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, was writing music always the plan? I mean, did you want to be an astronaut, or did you go to school for engineering or something? Or
2: oh no, I I went to school only for a couple of years, and I went for film. So basically trying to aggregate as many unemployable skills as possible. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, people have sort of, another thing that people like to ask is like, when did you decide to do this? And people are, you know, the other thing they say is that it's oh, it's so amazing. You just left school to do this. And, you know, I, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I guess, I guess I sort of made that decision. But it, it's almost like the decision was made before I even did it, before I even thought about it. So I I guess it kind of was always the plan. I mean, the thing about it is it transitioned from sort of hobby extracurricular to like a real sort of career pursuit. It it transitioned very organically, like over the span of, you know, eight to 10 years. So I don't even know if I can pinpoint a moment when I said, all right, this is it. I, I just think by the time I was getting ready for college, college applications, what have you, I was already so focused and devoting so much time to it that it it was just sort of obvious to me.
1: And then Jerry Harrison has been huge in your career. So this open mic night, like you got to tell that story.
2: Well, it's a longer story, actually. And it's a better story if I go back further. So in fifth grade, I had a, a project I had to do. It was like an end of year project. And you're supposed to present on something. It was called a passion project. And I picked the band Talking Heads, not, you know, not something more general like rock and roll or guitar or music, just specifically Talking Heads. So I saw Jerry around town a couple of times. I grew up in the town that he lives in. And so I decided to write him a letter to ask if I could interview him for this project. And I never heard from him. So like a week before the project was due, I was being driven home from a piano lesson and we saw him. My dad and I saw him in the car next to ours at a, a red light. We said, that's Jerry. So here's where my dad's sort of wild notions of what's okay to do and what's not okay to do comes in. And we followed him in our car.
1: Stalked him, in other words. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, And yeah. In, in that would be no euphemism. We very much did that. And, uh, and we followed him to outside of a local hardware store. And... You know, I was in fifth grade and young and shy. So my dad got out and sort of, I mean, confronted might be kind of a strong word, but, you know, he <laughs> talked to him and said, no, this kid here wrote you a letter about interviewing you. And, you know, would you would you talk to him? So he was very gracious. He said he, you know, he would call me some he he gave me his number and I called him a few times, didn't reach him. And then he called me back a few days before the project was due and, you know, we sort of had a a friendship and saw each other around town. And, you know, I, I think I've gotten a lot of passes in my life for being someone so young, for being into older music. Like once on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, I was at a coffee shop next to Ben Montench, the keyboard player from Tom Petty's band. Yeah. And I, I said, oh, you're Ben Montench. And had I been a baby boomer, you know, it might have been another in a string of very similar encounters. But for me to be able to identify him, I think, is a novelty. Perhaps the same with Jerry, so I think I get a bit of a pass. But anyway, so Jerry saw me a few years later playing songs at an open mic and offered to produce a record for me. And uh a couple of weeks later, I was in his studio doing acoustic demos of, of the 50 songs I had over a span of two days. And then Jerry picked... 16 of those songs to produce and we spend the next at least year maybe even year and a half working on them and certainly if i had to pick one major event that sort of sent me on this road to ruin doing music it would definitely be that yeah <laughs> although you know it's it's many little things really
1: yeah at fifth grade i was still trying to figure out how to tie my shoes so <laughs> um that's amazing
0: Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word G R O W I N U P R O C K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it.
1: Now, are you a guy that's writing constantly? Like, does your iPhone have 200 melodies, or do you kind of plan that out a bit?
0: Uh,
2: definitely the former. I mean, things have gotten pretty busy lately with just. More and more gigs and more, sort of more everything. Uh, You know, I grew up saying yes to everything, whether it was, you know, a farmer's market or opening a real club show or an Obama fundraiser, you know, whatever. And now that I'm at a sort of a point where a lot of, you know, a decent number of offers are coming in, I sort of need to learn the power of being able to say no to things. But as someone who really loves to play, it's kind of hard to do. So, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to make sure that that I don't overcommit at the expense of writing new material. But I am writing all the time and yes, my iPhone is is jammed with snippets that sometimes turn out to be solid and other times turn out to be total gibberish.
1: <laughs> now, there's a rumor you're writing songs in Spanish too? I just have one song that's half in Spanish. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, there's this song by uh The Pogues called Fiesta. OK, that's half in Spanish, half in English. It's not even really half and half. It's more all slurred between the two. Yeah. And I thought it'd be great to write a song sort of like that. So I tried my hand at that. And and serendipitously, I, in Spanish class, I had a, an assignment to write a poem. So I turned in the lyrics to the song as the assignment, even though I hadn't really written them for that assignment. And the, the teacher, who's great, she corrected them and I said, well, that's, that's just not going to fit the meter of the song. So we had to, I had to stay with my original grammatically flawed version.
1: <laughs> now, you know, the bands that you talked about, CCR, Rolling Stones, U2, etc. Well, U2, not so much, I guess, a little bit. Most of those guys have a rhythm guitar. You know, it's fuller music. You've decided to do most of this stuff as a three-piece Is that because you don't want to share a guitar plan or you're a guitar player first or?
2: I think at first
1: it was just because
2: I, before I ever formed a band, I, I played solo for many years. I mean, you know, six or so, six or seven years without ever playing with other people, really. Maybe a djembe player at an open mic or a didgeridoo player, something, you know, something sort of eclectic like that. Yeah. But I think I just developed a style, and I don't, I don't mean to say this is terribly unique or anything, but I think my style has always been sort of a hybrid between the two, and finding guitar riffs that have enough single notes that are distinct in them while having the body of a chord droning under. Yeah. So I think that's just how I came up as a guitar player, and um, maybe because of that, there are very few guitar players who have really enjoyed having in my band which is not about those people it's more about me. I mean I've been really lucky to collaborate with great people. And I I just like the energy and sort of minimalism of a three piece. People who've played in bands sort of know there's sort of this thing that goes around that it's like a four piece you sort of, you know, you sort of each carry maybe about 25% of the load, but when you play in a three piece you actually it's more than 33% for some reason it's it's greater you have to contribute more and there there's sort of this this chemistry that emerges from the skeletal nature of it that I I really like yeah and, and I don't know I guess it's it's just in the way I write my songs too I typically hear one guitar part at least for live stuff recording is a really different bag I've played in other bands like recently I've done a few Tom Petty tribute shows and I've been the the Tom Petty person in the band and it's great just playing rhythm guitar on those songs. I mean, they're tailor-made for, you know, a, a rhythm part and a lead part.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I've, I've said this out loud already, but I love your music, but man, you are hard to explain to people. So I got this explanation that is, I don't even know if I'm close. I I told somebody, you're Colton Dixon. The Clash, Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison, The Stray Cats, Cheap Trick, and Beatles in a blender, mix it up and garnish it with fun. Like, that's the closest I can get. And I know that's all over the place. How do you explain your sound?
2: Well, I mean, that sounds pretty good. I mean, (laughs) you know, the the only one that I guess I, yeah, I think the only one of those that I wouldn't say is a big influence, but I have no problem, you know, they're a great band. Cheap Trick is not someone I've spent a great deal of time listening to, but- I mean, there's certainly, I don't even know how it got this sort of power pop thing, because it's not like I, I mean, it really depends what you consider power pop or any of these genres, really, because yeah. some people think like Tom Petty is just a power pop band, and I think of it more as like Heartland Rock or something, but yeah, I don't know, how would I describe it? I kind of think of, and this is embedded in what you just said, too, I mean, I think I have these sort of two big pillars that I draw from. And one is this sort of late 70s, early 80s, new wave thing, Talking Heads, Costello, The Clash. And then the other is this sort of country and more recently Americana tradition that extends all the way from Hank Williams up to, you know, Lucinda Williams, basically. yeah. I, I think the big thing that that's missing in my recorded output right now is... Um, and and this will come in a little bit with this new record, but even more so in subsequent ones, is that I really, really love like totally stripped down singer songwriter stuff like Towns Van Zandt and Early Dylan and Guy Clark, people like that. And so far, my records have skewed very much towards sort of an energetic full band sound. So, kind of looking forward to getting that side of things more on document as as the records come out.
1: Yeah, I think the skeletal nature that you were talking about is what confuses people, right? They hear something but it's like, well, yeah, but they don't have like the clash, right? It's like I hear the clash in it, but because there's not this strumming riff behind the thing, it's like, well, you would have to imagine that in it and then yes, it would be the clash, you know, that kind of thing. So, I think that's what gets people
2: yeah, well, it, I think my records have sort of been sort of on a pendulum. Like, because there are so many ingredients, it's like the first one. Well, I, th- I thought it was a little too poppy for rock people. So the next record, the pendulum swung way towards this sort of Southern California first wave punk thing, like X. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you know, swung way that way. And and then I thought, gosh, this is you know sort of a little too raw and unbridled for you know people who at least a little bit of production value and so now it's swung somewhere else and I, I don't want to speak as much about the new one since it's about to come out and right I don't want to jinx anything about it but <laughs> I think it's arrived in a good place plus I just had a, a producer who I really really think did a tremendous job I'm I think the songs are hopefully a step forward, but it, if there's one thing I can say it really took a leap, it's definitely the production. He did a fantastic job.
0: Could barely touch my toes No matter how they want you That's just how the story goes Now I'm one quarter short Of the pavement for our back And I'm trying to find my way On a torn and tattered map. now She said write a song about me But I'd rather lie to the road. First time I saw her She was lying in the grass We both agreed we could forget About the past I had Come from the embryonic west I thought that was a joke She thought it was a test Everything was stable That's what it's most likely to explode I changed my name and overcame my fears But nothing's really conquered if it just disappears For a little while we were united on one front But we were both acting, doing our own stunts The mountainside was steady, it was getting ready to erode Touch my toes No matter how little you exercise the story goes Not one to show sure Of the pain for our back And I'm trying to find my way On a turn and tell her mouth She said write a song about me But I'd rather write about her
1: Stick with the same band pretty much. Is is uh, Paul and Cole still in the band, or do you have people switching and out?
2: It's a bit of a rotating cast. I mean, it's almost always the same people, but I, I do have it technically structured so that I hire people on a gig by gig basis.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, I mean that's pretty recent. That's as of early 2018, and the reason is it's it's kind of I think rock guys sort of grow up thinking that they're gonna find. They're John and Paul, whatever classic duo you want to name, and think that it's going to be this great, like, democratic, all for one, one for all type thing. And some people find that and it's great. But I I think for me, I sort of realized that, you know, I'm sort of shoveling coal down in the engine room and I want people to come along for the ride, but I, I know where I want to go. Sometimes that means that people aren't, can't commit fully. And that's gotten me into some trouble in the past, wanting people to commit and, It's not that they don't want to be part, but they can't commit in the same way that I want to, which makes sense. You know, it's my songs, my thing. So for me, being able to have sort of a roster of people to call on and not have it be sort of this interpersonal drama if they can't do a gig or, you know, it just makes it simpler. That's sort of all theoretical because in practice, I actually do use usually the same people, but sort of in theory and mentally, it's a little simpler. There's not any real committee or bureaucracy to go through.
1: Yeah. And and I'll tell you, that's refreshing because I've been around bands that wanted it somewhat democratic and it's just, God, it's just easier to have dictatorships, a hard word, but reality is it's easier to have one leader and one person makes the decisions and yeah, we'll take input, but come on guys, like I'm trying to get somewhere here.
2: Yeah, I mean, dictatorship is a perfect word, really. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> I, you know, we all, And I mean, the truth is, is that it's kind of been that for a while. I was just masquerading as something else. Yeah. And, I, and I've had great, great bandmates who have wanted to be involved. So I, I'm not trying to, this is not meant to be taking shots at anybody. It's just, I realized that it is taking a toll to have people who I, I didn't know if I could count on them, but still, could be hamstrung by their lack of commitment or uncertainty, you know, now it's really simple. And, you know, I think to, I think to people who haven't been through this, maybe it sounds more mercenary, but really what it is at the end of the day is everybody's happier. Yeah. If someone can't do a gig, I'll I'll still ask them, you know, next time. It's not a, it's not a psychodrama.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So tell me some advice that you've gotten that you fully embraced and maybe some advice you got over the years that You heard it, but maybe you didn't embrace it so much.
0: (laughs) Well,
2: let's see. I think the sort of a mantra, I guess, is I was doing this song screening with a guy named Narda Michael Walden. He's a a producer who did uh, a bunch of Whitney Houston's early hits, and it's very simple. He just said, never stop. And I think it sounds kind of maybe simplistic, but I, I think it's really taken me places as just sort of always doing it, always chipping away. I mean, another way to conceptualize it is thinking of whatever your goal is as sort of a brick wall. And it's like, sometimes there's not actually a way around it that's clever or intelligent. And the only way to do it is to keep running into it and making chips in it. I think I've sort of taken that to heart. I mean, it's taken me a while to sort of cultivate this into something I can actually live on and I don't even know if I can name any particular thing. I've just sort of willed it to happen by doing it. And I yeah, I think that's what I sort of hold as a core tenet. Yeah. Something I I guess I kind of think of things are haven't really responded to as far as advice goes. As I'm sure you know, anybody anybody in the industry knows. People talk such big games oh, and everybody yeah. everybody has something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's everybody's something to say and I mean, my my personal opinion is that pretty much everyone has something to offer in terms of what they say. If the actual advice they give isn't pertinent, then I think sort of acknowledging their perspective and sort of seeing their advice as a perspective that gives you an idea of how to behave or not behave is sort of a guidance unto itself. Yeah. I mean, I I think the one thing that I don't respond to that I hear sometimes is being cautioned against not playing too much, and I just disagree with that. I I think sort of live performance is sort of at the heart of what I do right now, and that uh, the idea that it should sort of be staggered or, I I don't know, I think it sort of comes from this concept that, like, we're only working to get two things, and I think that's a really easy perspective to sort of fall victim to that, you know, you're just doing these small gigs until you make it into this bracket or you're just doing X, Y, or Z for this result. And I sort of reject that because I think it's very easy to fall into these traps of thinking that gigs are only a means to something. And I like to consider them all sort of an end. Whether they're, you know, we've gotten to do some cool things like opening for Blues Traveler. I mean, that's that's a very obvious end that would register with anyone. Right. But for me, it can be a great gig if it's at a dive bar or a farmer's market, if it connects with the right people, you know.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, so I wanted to elaborate a little bit on the hard rock story. So so I see you the next day. I sent you an email and I wanted to purchase some of your music, but you hadn't released anything yet. So you sent me some demos through Dropbox and asked for my opinion, which right. probably was a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you sent me a, a CD, right? Yeah. Well, I sent you a three-page dossier on every song you sent me. Right, right. And I was right. waiting for like a big F you, and you were so appreciative. I'm like, geez, this kid is so nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know. I just...
2: You know sometimes i get to, I, I even get flack for saying thank you too much but <laughs> believe believe it or not, it's like I don't know it's kind of a, a small a minor miracle every time I can get somebody to listen to a song or something. It's like i don't know why should I get to play in front of people and have anybody care um so I don't know i i mean unless someone is being willfully cruel, which clearly that document was not meant to be, it was no. just meant to be you know a critical analysis of the songs and I, I think that's cool. I mean, I I totally remember it cuz I went and picked it up while at college and I I even remember the songs that I think you didn't like so much. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was I had a friend from high school who particularly liked one of those songs, so it's like, well, I don't I don't even know some really what it all comes down to. And I, I don't mean to say that I could only stomach the criticism because somebody else said something nice. Yeah. I think what it really all comes down to is one of my favorite sort of quotes and I'm going to butcher it by trying to paraphrase but it's an Andy Warhol quote and you know it's basically just go create art just keep creating art while people are busy saying it's bad or good just create more of it yeah and and that's something I sort of try to do i mean i've been lucky that i don't think i've been trolled too hard on the internet or something but you know people post nasty things every once in a while and it's super easy to let it get to you but it's like well rather be writing a new song yeah and and then I guess the other sort of while we're talking about Andy Warhol and whether you should listen to what people have to say another thing I like is they asked Lou Reed if he read reviews of himself and he said he didn't because if he believed the good reviews then he would also have to believe the bad ones
1: (laughs) oh yeah that's a good point (laughs) yeah so I don't know
2: I yeah no I, I I guess I'm just I'm appreciative of people taking the time because I don't think we live in a culture where people take the time too often.
1: Yeah. Now you play live a lot. We talked about that on the West Coast. You play on the East Coast. You've had a couple of European gigs. Like you obviously like playing live. Your energy, if anybody watches you on YouTube, like you're kind of bouncing up and down. It's not like you stand still very well.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's a high. It's really a high. I think our that's part of the thing at what I said earlier about the records really being so sort of rock heavy, so energy driven, is that when I teach my band songs, it's usually these really energetic songs. So when we go to make a record, it's like, well, yeah, they're all fast. What do you expect? You know, fortunately for this last one, I sort of took a more overhead view of like, OK, these are the songs I've written. What What's going to fit well together, not just what? Are the songs that my current band happens to know, so that's the approach I want going forward, but yeah, I don't know. I think at least for rock and roll like there's sort of a obligation to get people to try to try to get people to move, and uh I always think something's gone- r- horribly wrong if people aren't moving or you're not sweating or something by the end of a performance. <laughs>
1: All right, so there's the Blast Off EP. There's California Burning that came out in 2017. There was a Blast Off, the full album, that came out in 2018. Looks like you got uh, The Spirit Catches You coming out soon. When's the release date? I saw you crowdfunded. Why did you crowdfund?
2: Well, the release date is uh, November 9th, and very excited about it. I I listened to the record driving around yesterday, and I I still think it's really good. And uh, yeah, I crowdfunded because... Um, there are a few reasons. I mean, it goes without saying, but to offset the costs, I thought, I thought if I put it out there directly to people that, you know, I didn't, I didn't do just anybody who I've ever met on Facebook or something, but, you know, I, I reached out to a lot of people. And, uh, the other big thing for me, which I thought would be cool, and this has sort of happened, maybe not quite as much as I wanted, but is that I wanted to offer things. Physical merchandise to people who lived all around the world because I have an internet following that has never been to a gig, never been able to pick up a T-shirt or a CD or you know a poster or whatever. So uh, that was something that's exciting to me, and yeah, I would say it's been at least like 75% people who I have met, people I do know, but then there is this sort of X-factor 25% of people from. Australia, South Korea, Japan, a handful from the UK, I think like maybe 17 or 18 different states are represented. So that's just been really cool to me. So part of it was trying to, to some people, I sort of branded it as like, okay, here's what I'm doing. You know, if you have 20 extra dollars, you know, please consider this. And then to some other people, I I branded it more as like a pre-sale, like, well, never been able to offer people in japan a shirt before so you know here's your chance
1: yeah no that's cool okay so bone picking time i got all the music that you have out there i've got the stuff you sent me in dropbox and fault line still has not made an album and it's my favorite song okay
2: uh, <laughs> that, there are a lot of them out there. i mean my favorite songs i you know it's funny because elvis costello once said and here here i'm gonna butcher another quote but He said, oh, I'm I'm really not a, you know, I'm not really a rock singer. I'm a ballad singer. And when I was like 16 or 17 or whatever, I was like so taken aback by that. I was like, what what is this guy talking about? This guy's crazy. And he probably, you know, I'm sure he's trying to be provocative because he's a provocateur. But now I really get that because my favorite songs of mine, and I don't know if this would be surprising to someone or not, but they're all really ballads. So I can relate to you that my favorite songs of mine are not on records yet, really. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I think, I think the time will come. They're As you know, there are demos pretty much everything, and yeah. some are on there on YouTube, solo acoustic versions. And I think it's just a matter of finding, finding the right set of songs and the, the producer who says that, yes, that's a, uh, that's a song that I think should be included. I hope it makes a record sometime soon. And I also (laughs) hope that I continue writing enough songs that it would always have to fight for a
1: place. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool.
0: So I'll get
1: Uh, We talked about a lightning round a little bit, so we got a little bit of lightning round for you. Just don't overthink it, you know, just uh, kind of first thing that pops in your head. Best concert you've seen ever?
2: Uh, Neutral Milk Hotel reunion show, Manhattan, probably the
1: fall of 2014. Wow. Wow. Okay. If you only could listen to one the rest of your life, Elvis Costello, The Clash or The Replacements?
2: Oh, definitely Elvis Costello.
1: Okay. Okay. Favorite song to play live?
2: Um, something in Your Eyes. It's uh, It's going to be on the new record. Okay.
1: Song you wish you'd wrote? Oh, man, that's a lot. Uh, the Waiting, <laughs> Tom Petty. Oh, oh, I love that song. 49ers or Raiders? You a football fan? Not really,
2: but I'll definitely say 49ers because the Raiders are not going to be a Bay Area team next year, I think.
1: <laughs> uh, Johnny Cash or Bob Dylan? Oh, Bob.
2: I love. I love Johnny but got to give it to Bob. He's, he's the closest thing we have to a prophet on earth.
1: I'll tell you, Folsom Prison Blues on uh, California's Burning came out awesome. That's the best version I've ever heard of that.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I
1: appreciate it. That was awesome. Uh, two Desert Island albums. You can only take two albums with you. Only two albums.
2: Off the top of my head, since it's a lightning round, I'll say London Calling and Damn the Torpedoes.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Okay band or artist you want to see live in 2019 i'd love to see john prime i don't know if he's gonna oh, be yeah. around. yeah
2: oh actually i do know i'm playing at a i don't know why i said that i'm playing <laughs> at a festival that he's playing at so i hope to see him there
1: hey maybe he makes hope- a rock hall right he got nominated yeah oh he he really should he's brilliant i think <laughs> How do you consume most of your music? You know, just listening. Is it radio? Is it Sirius? Is it iPhone? Is it streaming? What do you use?
2: Oh, I, I usually go and buy cheap CD, use CDs, and put them on an iPod. Drive around.
1: God, I I still love physical product too. I just can't get into streaming.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I I just uh, I mean, I like it's so many things. I like having liner notes. I like having things. I mean, I'm not a terribly materialistic person, but I like having. I like having the thing that the music is on. Yeah. I think that's cool. I think it's like, you know, I, I just never got to have that moment back when it was vinyl. You'd like, go check a record store. If they had the thing, like a literal thing, piece of wax and you go put it on this other thing and put a needle on it. And music came out of that literal thing, which is just sort of mind blowing to me. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't go and buy used CDs all the time because I don't want to have all of them, but I really like having actual MP3s because not it's not like I'm driving out in Death Valley all the time, but I like knowing that I could access any of the songs I wanted to and wouldn't have to deal with buffering or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, makes sense. All right, so last lightning round question since you're a San Francisco brother. Sushi or steak? Oh, sushi. Oh, yeah.
2: I'm a vegetarian, so
1: that's the gimme. (laughs) Yeah, that one's easy then. Okay. Yeah. All right, so what's next for you? You got the new album coming out. Like You're playing a ton because I went online and saw that you got a ton of dates.
2: Yeah, well, I'm playing a lot around here, although a big goal for me in uh, the new year is to get out of the Bay Area. Because I don't currently have an agent, it's going to look sort of piecemeal like I already – In December, I have about a week down to L.A. and back. In the spring, I'm hoping to do sort of a Texas, Oklahoma, maybe New Orleans sort of mini tour. And then in the summer, I have a couple New York dates already, the John Prine thing, actually. And I hope to build maybe D.C. and Boston and Philly around that. And then what I'd love to do is get to the U.K. and parts of Europe, although so far my leads have sort of run dry. But I'm going to keep working at it. Yeah. So. Those are all big things coming up, uh many of them sort of pending, but uh those are big. I'm hoping to get back into the studio probably in January or something. I I would do it sooner, but the holidays are sort of like cholesterol to people's schedules. It's like can't I dunno, nothing gets done. So uh and then the other sort of weird wild card thing for me right now is I'm I'm working as the musical director for a a play that is being put on. Do you know Chuck Prophet by any chance? Oh, yeah, yeah. He and several others are turning his album, I think from 2012, it's called Temple Beautiful. Okay. They're turning it into a musical and they, Chuck's a friend of mine, we've co-written a little bit and uh, for some reason that I'm still trying to figure out, they asked me to be the musical director for it, so that's sort of something that's a little more peripheral to my own singer-songwriter thing, but another big thing I'm working on.
1: Oh, that's cool. That lets you branch out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well,
2: it's it's, it's music that I love. It's it's people that I love, and I think it's going to be just a, a great experience, certainly, certainly something
1: very new to me. Yeah. What's your two most popular songs live, like the ones that get the most people moving and get them into the music? Yeah, Rock Club Full Band.
2: Yeah, I think write a song about me gets people going typically, and Fire on the Freeway is another pretty easy one to digest, I think. Yeah. They're both, both really high energy and pretty fun, and I don't know. It depends though. I, th- I think some of my songs are better if I'm able to explain them to people who sort of listen and pick up the story, and, and some of my songs are worse if I'm able to explain them. So, it, <laughs> <but>, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm still working on saying the right amount. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So I want to uh, hang on after we get done here. But uh Matt, I just want to thank you so much for coming to Growing Up Rock. It was a pleasure having you. It's uh nice to talk to a young kid that's got it together and it's got his whole future in front of him. So thank you very much for being on and hang on with us, Okay.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me and, and for uh, following what I've been up to. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no worries. All right, so for the listeners, if you haven't heard of Matt Jaffe, the way you spell the last name is J-A-F-F-E. Uh, some of my favorites to try off is Blast Off album from 2018, the full album. I love One Last Time, No Hesitation, Overboard and My Avalanche. From California's Burning that came out in 2017. Uh, I love Write a Song About Me, Locomotive Lightning. But yeah, if you want to support his crowdfunding, it might still be up by the time this gets released, but it's on www.indiegogo.com and then just search Matt Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E. Besides that, thanks for listening and we will catch you later.